4th of March 2011. Okay, so you all know that the tendencies or qualities have been developed in past lives, mentally, emotionally or physically. They happen generally in group formation because of your social life and family interactions and all of the challenges in life that you meet and they depend very much on where you are mentally or emotionally in that particular life and they're generally a continuation of similar qualities that have been developed in a former life. You can fix up samskaras from this life as well, that things that you've developed and of course they can um, go way, way back from say ancient Atlantis and even earlier. So there's a whole history of, of qualities that you've developed. Some of them have been reinforced and almost hard like concrete that are very difficult to, to shift. Others are relatively easy because they've been developed relatively recently. The worst and the hardest of all the samskaras to the shift or to transform uh, those of your DB activities because you're all disciples and we're talking about discipleship at your age. Therefore, it takes often, well, an incredible number of lives to actually transform DB samskaras to those of the white light, of the white hierarchy. And they don't all get transformed simultaneously it takes time to work at one or other of the samskaras, and normally it's at a particular life you're dealing with one or the other. Sometimes it's many at the same time. There's also, of course, samskaras from, developed from your meditative lives, from your lives of service work, and yogic lifestyle, developing of magic, psychic powers. These, of course, assist you in your present service work and endeavors. And generally, at any particular time in the life of disciples, they have a number of unconverted or repentant DV samskaras or those types of qualities of selfishness, hatred, spites, animosity, and of course a whole pack of DB that go with them. I start off with this talk on samskaras because the main attribute that, that our group differs from all other groups is that we are an initiation training group. We teach disciples how to pass their high initiations. Most genuine groups of spirituality deal with aspirants, pledged disciples, and train for the first degree initiation. And they often don't know that. They have got their own set terminology, philosophy. They could be Buddhist, Christian, um, any of the occult groups, and so forth. But that's what they, or the level they're at. We, of course basically start at that level or we really start at the level of first degree initiate and we work on and up. It's uh, difficult for new disciples, new students to understand exactly what initiation is. The path is not that easy to define. Of course, you've got the Bailey books and my books to teach others the stages of initiation such as those of the first initiation, what you're actually working to achieve, and also what there generally is in the new disciples is a wrong perception as to what they need to transform, transmute. For instance, in the field of sex, 
it's not necessary the fact that you're sexual. In other words, we're not asking you to be celibate. We're asking you to have a certain amount of control of your sexuality. But more specifically, we're asking the disciples, certainly after the first initiation, to work with the energy of sex or the sexual samskaras in such a way that you're cleansing your sexual samskaras from past lives. The type of relationships we have, therefore, are those that condoned or demanded by hierarchy, demanded by the exigencies of karma that will lead us to become Buddhas. What most people want, of course, is a whoopee of a sex life that makes them happy all that life, you know, continuous gratification one way or the other. It's not necessary at all what hierarchy wants for you or what your soul wants for you. You understand that what we are working towards is inevitably a, um, a transmutation of the sexual impulse into higher yogic or higher ecstatic vision and the elimination of unwarranted and unnecessary sexual relationships, karma, so the type of karma that would keep you tied down to samsara and tied down to the wheel of rebirth. After all, that's what sex is really about, is to offer vehicles of expression you know, via reincarnation, so you know, in other words, children, so that they can grow up and work upon samskaras. From the initiate point of view, what we're working towards is the fixing up of all of our sexual samskaras from past lives, the elimination of the types of karma we have with individuals that do not serve a purpose in terms of you eventually becoming a Buddha. They're not capable of traveling as fast as you are anywhere near as fast as you're going to travel. They no longer can keep up with you. You must leave them behind. You're going to become their teacher, their guru. And sometimes you'll have, in a later life, incidental sexual partners to cleanse the last remnants of the karma of that individual. And from then onwards, there's never, ever going to be another contact of that nature. It's this concept of cleansing of karma and the transmutation of base qualities so that eventually you produce alchemical gold. The transmutation of gross samskaras so that eventually you have wisdom in every direction and love that you can think of. And then the highest attribute is the, the will to penetrate the planes of revelation, the planes of liberation. You can see that the concept, and in this particular age that we live in now, in this Western world, everyone's infatuated with the concept of romantic love. Those of us that are older generally find that romantic love doesn't work out all that often or all that well. It's got a use-by date, and then it produces all sorts of problems because the romance falls away. The, the warts of the individual start to grate at you. You're traveling at different paths and different directions. So there's an ending of that relationship. Sometimes arranged marriages work out much better because people actually work seriously at the long-term prospects of the relationship and they work at developing love. 
it takes time often to understand a person and it's not done through the infatuation of emotions. And strong emotions is what, what romantic love is. But of course romantic love is based on samskaras from past lives. And um, what, what sometimes is, is brought to the fore in this romantic love can be an enemy from a past life that your souls want to actually fix up warring attributes. So they bring them together in this romantic love notion. And that starts off nice, and then suddenly the uh, old rivalry and enmity comes to the surface, and then you have war, warring energies. Anyway, that's with average people. With disciples, the problem is that the whole kitten caboodle comes to the surface and disciples are also energized at the same time so they're not just dealing with the normal load of emotions they're dealing with energizations working through the normal load of emotions and psychic attack um, others out there in the material world often suffer what is psychic attack, but they don't need, they haven't got a clue what it is, and therefore they get headaches, all sorts of sicknesses, mood changes, and, and so forth. The whole world that they live in is full of entities that can possess them and attack them in different ways. What the path of initiation is, and this is the, the difference again between the way you're being trained and the way others are being trained, is that you actually are awakened and awakening to psychic attack and dealing with this type of karma as you're transforming your samskara. As a matter of fact, you look at the DB as one of your teachers or some of your teachers. They teach you what not to do. They also teach you when you look into the type of attack that you're receiving of some of the errors you did in past lives that are no longer viable for you in this life. What is evil, a definition of evil, is just simply the good that once was, that no longer is, and therefore which you have transcended. It now becomes a hindrance to the path, and you must work to overcome. And as you work to overcome that, you're transforming samskaras. And so whether it's sex, material comforts, money, the first initiation level, you're dealing with what you're mainly dealing with selfishness, selfish incentives, and strong desire, and things to do with the material plane. Everything to do with the material plane orientation must be fixed up in the first initiation. When one passes an initiation, it does not necessarily mean that one's totally mastered all of those qualities. What it means is that they no longer are the governing attributes in that initiate's life. There may be sexual samskaras that they've passed 60%, and they've got another 40% of it to go later on in the second initiation phase or the third initiation phase of that particular transformation of the samskara. And transformation later on becomes transmutation. 
you've got to transform the, the, the base substance, the base quality into the spiritual gold, into the refined, higher attribute, wisdom attributes, enlightenment attributes, compassionate attributes. Selfishness goes, the whole concept of the I, me, mind disappears in the higher stages, and certainly by the time the third initiation happens. In the third initiation, there's not a skerrick of a concept relating to selfishness. In the initiate's life, it's gone. Relating to the ego, it's only the group service. And the, that which relates to the development of symbolic purpose. Initiation nowadays is always group service. A group of individuals such as yourselves are brought together to pass group initiation. You have your own individual testings and masteries. So you're going through your own individual initiation, but it's also within the wider context of what the group service work is. You cannot pass initiation anymore without passing it within the context of group initiation. And the whole group also, as I mentioned earlier, have their group samskaras. Sometimes you might call it group dumbness, group infatuation that they have to overcome. For instance, there could be a group that was involved in the Inquisitional period in Europe. Some lives ago, they were busy sort of, you know, attacking other Christians and thinking in terms of burning witches. It's not that far back in the past when many, many high disciples were doing that, right? That's what the politics in those days was. And many, many cruel activities were fostered by disciples, on this type of group samskara. They're co-religionists attacking a, another form of religion. And of course, some of the worst crimes committed against humanity uh, are committed in the name of religion. In other words, by disciples. So you can see that you can have this type of samskara of a group working out. You can also have another type of samskara, which is I find quite evident in our group, is the group of rulership, of sharing power. You can, for instance, be a group that were responsible for the governments of a nation, say France, 300 years ago. So you were the kings, queens, the, the nobles that were busy sort of amassing financial and the material comforts resources for yourselves, of course, living in great opulence on the backs and the sweat of your serfs and mundane laborers. Of course, what nobles did, certainly as you go further back, is wage war, continuous warfare. That's generally what made them nobles in the first place. They're military commanders or part of an army of a king and they conquer and the king gives them title, you know, his best commander's title to the land and lordship over the conquered people. And there you have a hereditary sort of development coming from that and they're in charge of the protection of those conquered people as long as those conquered people stay as serfs and slaves uh, doing their bidding. And you can see... If you think about some of your attitudes that you have, that it stems back to this type of karma where you have a strong tendency for possessiveness because, of course, you don't, when you have a lot of possessions back in those days, you wanted to amass more. 
and often it was incredible selfishness, such, of course, what you see in the multinational corporation. And then they're working for a billion dollars, and they get a billion dollars, they want five billion. It doesn't stop. Like Mubarak with 70 billion. What on earth, how on earth can he spend that or use any of that in his lifetime? And it's raided from, you know, 80 million people are basically slaves, turned into serfs and living in poverty or near poverty, so that that man can have so much resource that he can't use. It's all samskaras and karma and all of that. And then 5, 10, 20, 30 years, I don't know how many lifetimes in the future this man's going to sort of suddenly maybe one day become a disciple and have to start to pay it back, fix it up. So the difference um, between you and, say, that guy is that you're like that maybe 20, 30, 40 lifetimes ago. And you're still sort of cleansing ramifications of that type of attitude. And, and then later on, you have to transform it into learning how to give. And then suddenly the group has to lose their resources or great swathes of it things that they're addicted to in a life such as this particular life, going back in some of the things that we've had to lose because it simply was stolen in an earlier cycle. It must be paid back. It's interesting when one looks at the karma of money specifically. I mean, we all love this stuff. You know, it, it, um, it buys lots of happiness for a lot of people and a lot of things that they like to um, put all around their rooms and their, and their buildings or whatever. They don't think much about it unless they don't have it. But the karma of money is, is quite interesting. It is karmically what we call dirty money is basically money that, for instance, may be donated to you that was not appropriated cleanly. It was appropriated to the suffering of many, many individuals. Somebody's doing a good job. They're doing the right thing. They're donating to a group like ours. This money that uh, really has a lot of karmic baggage to it. So what does hierarchy do of it? You know, the person is doing the right thing from in terms of giving, and therefore they get the good karma of that. But you've got the karma of using resources that has got unfortunate circumstances and it's building up. So then hierarchy works out ways of dissipating those resources in such a way that it doesn't really build for the group any lasting beneficence. Money, sex, material comforts, it's all transient. As you get older, you've seen it come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go. You can't really hang on to it for very long. And, you know, there's wars, famines, etc., and it can come out of the blue. We're just discussing the other day about inflation and, and rapid, massive inflation. A lot of people are going to lose lots of things. You saw, for instance, those nice, sedate, middle-class people in Christchurch a week or so ago, and all of a sudden they lose their homes, their houses, their lives. It can happen at any time, this sort of thing. Because of all different types of samskaras, all different types of karma that comes to the surface, what we as initiates are learning to do is to look at our karma with open eyes, not to be attached to anything we have or that attached, because everything that we have is devoted to the service work. It's best to take the attitude that is not yours. It's hierarchies. It's God's. However you want to phrase it, 
it just passes through your fingers. You're the custodian of that resource for X amount of time so that you can use it to benefit others' work. If you use it primarily for yourself, then you've got attached karma and you're developing samskaras that are not wholesome. They're deadly to the spiritual path. For this particular reason, we manifest as a group. We share resources. We make sure we share resources because that way, if everyone owns it, and it's not owned by anyone particular, but by the group, and we know that all members of the group are working to be loving to each other, and that the entire group purpose is in accordance with the directives of the most loving people on this earth, it can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. Your karma is directed. The bad karma, the good karma, group karma, individual karma, it's all woven in. It's all karma. And karma is transient in the end. Of course, when it comes to the paying back of samskaras, especially when it comes to disciples, then you've got some, sometimes some terrible deeds you've done to other people. Magical deeds, psychic deeds, avaricious deeds, culpable deeds. They cause lots of pain and suffering. So then you've got to go through that pain of suffering to the degree that you have caused it. You can't avoid it. You can try avoiding it. But if you try to avoid your karma, if you try to avoid the suffering that you've caused to others, then it's going to manifest again and again and again and again and again until you get it, until you've paid it off. It is for this reason, for instance, that we as a group work with the factor of pain, we work with the factor of suffering. We don't take um, physical plane medications. We try not to anyway, not for the relieving of pain. There's certain rules that we work with. It's not that we're going to be stupid and, and not deal with ameliorative effect to f try to fix up the suffering or fix up the pain or fix up the disease. But we don't do it with physical pain drugs, and in other words, with chemotherapy, because that was never designed for the human body. These toxins have to come out. They affect the nervous system. They kill the brain cells and... When you actually have to fix up what those toxins, mineral drugs have damaged that cause in your body, it causes further pain. It's the inevitable and only consequence of mineral drugs. So we use alternative methods, herbal methods, zapping methods, natural methods to deal with sicknesses and diseases. We deal with the factor of karma. We understand that there's karma involved. Certain amount of pain and suffering must be lived through. Can't be avoided. So you throw away the mineral drugs. Of course, when it comes to such things as parasites, worms and, and so forth, yes, you can use the toxins that's specific for them. It doesn't necessarily have to be herbal. It can be mineral as long as it doesn't invade your bloodstream. It's what goes into the bloodstream where the problem lies. Or if, as I said again, it's a mineral a poison 
that's absorbed into your system and then affects your brain cells and, and the whole nervous system and so forth. You avoid all sorts of accumulative toxin that are in foods as much as is possible. This whole crazy world we live in, of course, they pack all sorts of chemicals into food that makes sometimes it very difficult to avoid these things, but you try to avoid as much as possible. How, and, of course, the body can eliminate a certain amount, and it will eliminate a certain amount over time. When it eliminates, there's pain and suffering. And if you accumulate too much toxin, then what normally happens is that the substance, the chemicals, crystallize between the spaces of your cells. It's what I call interstitial spaces. And when it crystallizes, then later on you get arthritis, cancers, all sorts of quite debilitating pains that in some cases produce senility. I don't even want to think about the types of states that people have to suffer when they get old because they were not following the laws of the natural rules of health. Therefore, you have to think very carefully about what goes into your body. And when we're talking about what goes into your body, we're talking about food. And when we're talking about food, we're not just talking about physical food. We're talking about psychic and emotional, mental input. All of this tendency produces again, this concept of samskaras. People have a tendency to be highly emotional because, yes, that's the, the natural state of affairs in this world. It's the, the major cause of all suffering on this planet is people's emotions. And, of course, you're all aware of the way um, you've been addicted to various forms of emotions and the suffering eventually that causes because it's most addictive. And you understand all the subtle desires that comes with the gross emotions, which most people are aware of, you know, fear, hatred, spite, animosity. But then there's the subtle emotion that most people at a certain stage take as virtue. And then at a later stage, they're actually detriments. Loving mind, for instance, where you do things lovingly, but there's a selfish motive. You tell yourself that you're doing it altruistically, but in fact, you're doing it because there's a reason for doing it that serves you. That, later on, is another samskara that has to be fixed up. It's a second-ray samskara. So you can see even the concept of wanting to serve becomes transmuted. You just simply serve. You know, it almost becomes an instinct. You help because that is what your whole nature is. You're no longer concerned, in other words, about your own path in life, about the transmutation of your samskaras, about what you're doing, because your whole instinct, everything you do, is for the benefit of everyone around you. That's the initiation path. That's what the initiation path turns you into, a bodhisattva. As you become more awakened and you look more along these lines, then you see that relationships as such, but opportunities to cleanse samskaras, to fix up the problems that you'd made in former life with that individual, to produce a harmonious relationship, yes, everyone's great objective, and then to transcend it.
transcend it into a service work relationship. The only reason really you're together or hierarchy brings you together is that you can serve together. And if you can't serve together, there's no point. As I said earlier, if you can't travel at the same rate of traveling, then you'll see that one higher initiate either has to spend a lot of time in sacrificial activity trying to bring the younger initiate to a higher state of spiritual development. And very often there are sacrificial relationships like that in the initiation path. And this is necessarily a major form of relationship for all disciples, sacrificial relationships. The advanced disciple is teamed up with a less advanced disciple because the less advanced disciple gains massively from the sacrificial action of the advanced one. And the advanced disciple, sadly for them, is paying back karma from a earlier cycle when you know, a member of hierarchy more advanced than them incarnated in a sacrificial way to help them in a similar way. This is actually one of the quickest ways that a disciple can advance through these types of couple interrelationships if both members of the, the couple understand well what is happening or why they appear together and that the younger disciple understands that their partner on a higher and more advanced initiation level is their teacher in every way, really. Then that younger disciple can travel very far and service work, great service work can be done. If the youngest disciple doesn't recognize that, then there's conflict, pain, suffering for both and inevitable disintegration of the relationship. The older disciple sometimes just has to move on. There is an energy sort of equation. Energy input needs some sort of you know, energy output that is beneficial in the end. Now, the other thing to do with relationship karma and samskaras associated with that is that not only are disciples often coupled together that are not equal Spiritually, it would be nice to, to have, and sometimes it works like that, where two disciples basically at third degree initiation status or fourth degree initiation status are working together and they'll have a nice harmonious serving relationship for that whole life with very little conflict because they are helping each other at the same level of development. You can understand that. That's relatively rare. It's much more important in many ways for the unequal relationship to manifest because the advanced disciple learns many skills in how to help disciples through being coupled with a younger disciple because of all the challenges it involves and develops compassion, more and more compassion as they go on. And they are tested in their initiation part tested in the transmutation of samskaras and fixing up some of their karma from earlier cycles when they were very selfish in their attitudes. You can see quite clearly when you're helping a younger disciple to master the tricks of initiation, you have to become very unselfish, very sacrificial.
And there you have the transmutation of a certain type of karma, of selfishness, of, of self-centered activity from former lives. You can see, therefore, some of the value here. The other thing is that normally, of course, disciples are paired together with similar ray lines, not necessarily identical, because identical ray lines, if they both raise two, four, it's a very boring relationship, not that much to be gained. It's much better for cross-referencing relationship karma to manifest where there's a difference in ray lines but similarity so that they can both benefit from learning from the other ray quality. And again, you can see the problems and the benefit. Everything that hierarchy gives to you to do, every challenge, is for your benefit and for the benefit of the other. Some actually understand the challenges and they rise to meet it head on, bravely, overcoming their samskaras, fixing up their karma, passing initiation testings. But the great majority flounder, especially the men, their big problem in every case has been ego, pride. I've just seen too many hundred men now in my you know, in the 40 or so years I've been training initiates and I have not yet seen them travel very far on the initiation path because of this problem of pride. It's the big stumbling block. It's very hard for them especially to bow down to women. And probably it's because of this whole few thousand years of patriarchal societies that we've developed that have made men somehow think that they're superior to women in every way. When in fact, the women are the ones that have to raise the children and have to manifest all forms of sacrificial actions in their home's life and service to men in so many different ways where the men can cop out. And it's this particular aspect, this sacrificial aspect of women that hierarchy are using nowadays to make them the preeminent disciples. We are transiting now from this patriarchal society to a matriarchal society, which is what the New Age really is about. It's the age when the Diva Kingdom comes to the fore, when humans will begin to work with Divas in a very conscious way, and again, women will show the men what Diva law really is about, because it's intrinsic to their nature. And this is another aspect of the initiation path. Divas, dragons, unicorns, the whole panoply of inner plane life, what the real masters are, the genuine enlightened beings on this planet, the entire hierarchy and Shambhala itself. And a definition of initiation is just simply it makes your Shambhala recipient. You enter the kingdom of God through passing initiation. And the only way to do that is by passing initiation. There's no other way. There's no other way to become enlightened. This whole segmented structure of the reappearance of hierarchy upon this planet is so that the next hundred or so years of hierarchy students can be trained. And the beauty about initiation is that we all travel together. We all flower as we serve each other to pass 
It's a whole process of sacrificial service. The phrase is sacrifice, sanctifies. And if you can't sacrifice your time, your effort, your energy to help those below you, you cannot pass the initiation testing. If you don't have the vision, you don't have the love, you cannot sacrifice, you cannot move any further. If your whole thinking is about yourself, what you possess, what you can do for others, yes, but only in a way that you benefit personally in your thinking, then you're not going to get very far. And all of hierarchy, all of Shambhala and all of the universe work like this. The only grouping that don't work like this are those that are enthralled by the Dark Brotherhood or are members of the Dark Brotherhood and they are poses. So the other concept that you have to think in terms of the initiation path is the concept of radiance, of illumination. When you actually begin to see what it is that you're transforming and what it is that's zapping you and why they can zap you, it's because of the substance that you have within you that's unredeemed, that hasn't been transformed, that's grey, that's murky, that, that's agitated, that is muddy in colouring, that has a dissonant note to it. This is what the DB work with, and this is what you're working to transform. You're transforming and then transmuting gross colours, basic lethargic substance, into pure light, into radiant light, what in Buddhism is called the clear light of mind. And then it becomes the natural state of mind. And the natural state of mind really is defined as the mind at rest, the mind that does not move. It's luminous. That's the way that it goes towards enlightenment, towards Buddhahood. But another thing that the beginners then have to understand is they have to deal with psychic attack, the karma from their, their magical and yogic development of, from formal lives, and they involve mostly with sex magic, with manipulating other people's desires, manipulating their, their money resources, manifesting power for yourself on the physical planes through psychic means. It goes on. But the other thing that beginners have to also understand is that it ties in with psychology. It's not just a matter of zapping the DB and it's, and it's over and done with. You actually have to work upon fixing up your bad psychology. You actually have to own up to your psychology, your selfishnesses, your fears, your hatreds, your spite. You actually have to be honest with yourself and you have to allow your brothers and sisters that can see what is happening to you because of their psychic perceptions, because they're being trained to be psychologists, where it is, where your psychology is cracked and what you must do to fix it up. And again, samskaras produce this cracked psychology, this incessant fear over something or irritation or concrete mindedness that it's just no good. It's destructive to group purpose and womb. It doesn't relate to the energy of love. It produces karma and karma bearing fruits for former lives. And it's a continuation of certain types of karma that you developed in past life. So the psychology must be fixed up as you're zapping. The DB have two groups. There's the black, so light type, the Idanati DB, which hit you with quite painful forces. And then there's the gray types that deal with psychology. 
They're psychological experts. They can see your grey nadis, they can see your grey thinking, they can see your selfish thinking, they can do your, the astrological charts to do with this aspect of you and from your past lives. They can see those past lives. They know when you are DB, they know when you are a brother or sister of theirs, when you are part of their camp. They're working with those samskaras, they're working with that developed psychology, and they're using it against you. And if you persist in hanging on to a certain aspect of DB, what we um, call grey psychology, you will lose your spirituality. You're going to become one of them in this life, and if you persist, you'll end up back in their camp. This is a war between dark brotherhood and white brotherhood and the battle is over your psychology. And the way to fix up your psychology is by bowing down humbly to your group brothers and sisters who will tell you where the error is logically and correctly and they'll help you zap away to DB, they'll try to foster that and they'll help you with understanding that aspect of your psychology when they have the time. And if you persist in the psychology, because you're falling to the same DB traps over and over and over and over again, they'll pick you up as long as you are willing to work upon yourself. Sometime down the track, you're going to become a brilliant server of the light, and then you're going to be paired off with someone to whom you're going to have to give back that same amount of energy and time. That's the way the karma works with disciples and discipleship. Now, the other thing to do with regards to hierarchical training for you, we are always living in the future. Humanity lives in the past. They live in their past samskaras. They live in their past karma and they repeat, they repeat again and again and again the same type of stupid mistakes that keep them tied down to the wheel of birth and death, to what Buddhists call the six realms. We of hierarchy, we're always living in the future. We're projecting our vision to the future. We're developing qualities that we desire to have in the future. And as we awaken our higher perceptions, we're showing images of the future. And as we transform our samskaras, we stand as the future what the future is to be for the disciples that are to follow us, that have not yet mastered those qualities. That's what a Buddha is. For all of us, a Buddha is that which is for us still a future attainment. For him, it's a present or the eternal now. It's therefore important and for disciples to actually fix up their concept of time. Time is irrelevant. Time is immaterial. When you get to be my age, you've seen so many decades pass and you still think that you're something like 15 or 18 in your consciousness because it's so young and youthful. But your body is sort of advanced. It's young and youthful because of the transmutation and transformation of samskara. The mind has become light. It's sprightly. It's, it's vast. It's pervasive. But it's youthful. Because of that, there's no heaviness about it. The emotions have gone. I suppose it's a difficult concept for some, but some of you know. Now, 
This is just a background talk. Most of you already know this for the new people. The advanced members of the group, they're also very busy. There's so many arenas of service work to do and helping new disciples overcome samskaras, overcome the zapping, of course, is part of their work, but it's only part. And they have to carefully judge and weigh how much of that to do and how much of the vast amount of other service work, um, such as writing books and doing web pages and whatever it is that is, relates to our whole world's education that this group is involved in. This is a important consideration, a time consideration. Time is of the essence. We cannot afford to waste time. Every move we make has to be judged as to the most efficient use of our time. To squander time is the greatest crime we um, can manifest on this planet. Later on, you'll see that you're going to have to deal with certain types of karma that comes from um, the squandering of time in past lives. Even certain types of quite unpleasant uh, pranas you're going to have to experience because of it. Very yucky. But you'll find aspects of your life where you're so overwhelmed with things to do and things to accomplish and no time to achieve it because of time-wasting activities in an earlier cycle. Of course, um, hierarchy have worked out the right cycle for everyone. When you're young and youthful, you're given much more time to work out the emotions, to do certain types of activities, and things happen slower. When you get older and more mature, um, you're expected to develop some wisdom, and therefore you run on the path where before you were just sort of limping along. The more advanced you become on the path, the more time becomes very, very valuable indeed. And Later on, the whole concept of time is transcended. You live in a timelessness because you become integrated with the mind structure of hierarchy and you begin to think in terms of their cycles of events. And they may be thinking in terms of cycles of thousands of years, hundreds of years, for something to be accomplished, some task they've set that will take be manifest its fruition, some lives in the future. And they're willing to wait and to do all the forms of activity for hundreds of years until that task, that fruition has been done. And it goes on with many, many tasks, because all initiates have to multitask. They're not just involved in one little thing. They're involved in many, many things at once, because that's the initiation path. The initiation path is for you to be able to solve problems of all types, of all natures, actually quite quickly. You become leaders in many, many fields. So you can see that the path of initiation is the path of overcoming hardship, overcoming difficult task after difficult task. And the higher the initiation, the more difficult the task that is set for you to achieve. Younger initiates, they can get by on relatively easy things to do. And for them, some of us, I can look at it as almost a laugh at what, what they're burdened by. But for them, it's a real difficult thing because they're not used to high achievement. They're not used to multitasking. 
They're not used to the pressures of life that uh, makes them overcome many things at once. Therefore, every initiation necessitates passing a series of crises that shows the initiator what metal you're made from. If you can't pass those crises, how can you be a high member in the ranks of initiates? How can you be an adjudicator of other people's lives? You actually have to, in time, think and live multidimensionally, as the masters do, living on the um, monadically, looking from the point of view of the soul, from the spirit, from the point of view of the astral plane, from the point of view of, of where people's minds are. You have to look in the past of that particular samskara of that individual. You have to see its tendency towards the future and while that person may be going through some sort of crisis and at the same time um, you may be dealing with with a dragon that's talking to you and, and, and something else that's happening on the inner realms. Multitasking simultaneously. Of course, for the um, high initiates, they sometimes also have bits of leisure here and there and they can do something else that's simpler and easier. But you can see what I'm getting to. The more advanced the initiate, the heavier the workload and the harder the tasks that's set for them to do. But they're up to it. They've had the lifetimes of training. They've, they've gone through um, spiritual boot camp, through being government executives, through being rulers of nations, through being the leaders of armies and so forth. They've had life and lifetimes of that sort of training. They know how to handle people. You're all executives. And as more people come to this group, then, of course, you become high-powered executives, but compassionate and without any frenzy, because you know how to utilize your time wisely. Proper time considerations, you can see, is of the essence. Timelessness within the cycles of time, that's the way the initiation, initiate mind is. The law of cycles is the way we work and think. Cycles to get certain things to be achieved. And if that particular task cannot be achieved by that cycle, the cycle is over. You must move on to something else. You failed in the task. And sometimes it's very hard to get the younger initiates to actually understand the concept that something must be achieved by a certain cycle. If it's not fixed up by then, if it's not done by then, new karma comes in. New lives come to the surface. New people come into your life. You get side-stepped into some other venture that has to be done. The old venture has to be dropped for another life. Great shame. Because if there's a certain amount of time was slated for that service work, you can see quite clearly and because you, being slack, being lazy and, and involved in selfish activities, do not manifest that service work, every individual that was to be benefited by it cannot be benefited by it. The book that could have been written was not written. The individuals that would have been served by reading that information will not be served. Everyone's life is stolted stunted, stultified. It's a setback for hierarchy. And you must pay the karma. Next life, double hard work. 
your whole life is basically an impulsion to, to work from a very early age because of a certain failure. No leisure there. So I implore all of you to begin to understand the concept of cycles, that you see me move from place to place and work frantically in a certain type of activity, and I'll drop that completely and do something else because the cycle is finished. It's simple as that.